finding out about that my metadata had been accessed. It's just a really awful feeling. Comments from just everyday citizens are being deleted rapidly, so they're trying to completely shut down any reporting on the story. Yeah, I did go down on a plane to Melbourne a few times, pick up loads of secret documents and just bring them back to Sydney on the plane. You know, they were the, in many ways, the easy days. Hey there, I'm Kate Golden from the Walkley Foundation. This is the Walkley Talks podcast. It's April 2016, and we're back from a few months hiatus to bring you our last Walkley media talk at the State Library of New South Wales. These are cozy little public events in Sydney where journalists and experts talk freely about how the media really works. The topic this month was press freedom, and it happened to be kind of a big day for press freedom, which is not to say a great day. My colleague, Claire Fletcher, will explain more. Our panelists this time were Paul Farrell, who covers national security for The Guardian, Alex Hearn, who tracks the bad things that happen to journalists in the Asia-Pacific for the International Federation of Journalists, and as moderator, we had Wendy Bacon, a longtime muckraker and journalism professor. Here's the talk. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of this land, the elders, past and present of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. The Walkley Foundation's core mission is to foster excellence in Australian journalism and to support a robust and independent media which deepens and enriches our democracy. We also advocate for press freedom in Australia and for our colleagues in the Asia-Pacific. You can't have a healthy press and democracy when journalists are unsafe, under threat, killed with impunity or gagged by legislation. Did you know the International Federation of Journalists has counted almost 2,300 media workers killed for doing their jobs around the world just since 1990? You can learn more about this cause and how you can help, including by buying a raffle ticket that could win you a wonderful prize, or attending the Press Freedom Australia dinner on May 6 at our website, walkleys.com. And I think it's fitting that tonight our discussion is about press freedom in Australia and our region and how that freedom is under threat. Just today, The Guardian published a story confirming that the Australian Federal Police requested access to the metadata of a journalist, in fact, one of our speakers tonight. So I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that from Paul. Mia, the uh, Union for Journalists in Australia, their CEO, Paul Murphy, roundly condemned the AFP's secretive pursuit of journalist sources, saying that it comes down to this. Journalists writing legitimate news stories in the public interest now have police trawling through their private metadata, all because a government agency is embarrassed about a leak. In the process, the rights of journalists are trampled on. The public's right to know what governments do in our name is being overridden by public servants seeking to cover up a scandal in order to persecute and prosecute a whistleblower. It makes a mockery of open and transparent government. Our panel will take some questions from you tonight, um, so please hold your questions until the end and wait for the microphone which we'll bring around. Uh, you can also join in the conversation on Twitter if you like, use the hashtag Walkleys, but please keep your phones on silent. So without further ado, let's hear from our panel. Our moderator will introduce the rest of tonight's speakers and she is the lovely Wendy Bacon. Wendy has helped shape many of today's young Australian journalists in her former role as Professor of Journalism at UTS. Right now she's a board member for the Centre for Advanced Journalism at the University of Melbourne and the Pacific Media Centre. Wendy's a contributing editor to New Matilda and the editor of Frontline in the Pacific Journalism Review. She's also an investigative journalist in her own right and has done some big coverage of climate change reports for the Australian Centre for Independent Journalism. Please welcome Wendy in our panel. Thank you very much, uh, Claire, and uh, welcome everyone here tonight. And I'm really looking forward to this discussion, although I think there are so many issues just looking at it that we will struggle to um, cover them all. I think just before we take questions, um, uh, I really hope that you can raise any issue that we don't cover feel free to raise it um, during question time. But also I'll probably will throw to just Paul and Claire right just before we have questions, just asking them, is there any issue that they'd like to have raised uh, that we didn't actually get to? Because I really felt going through some material today that there's so many really important ones. And I just thought I'd make 
a few remarks partly based on my own experience and just a couple of things about fresh press freedom um, before we start. I mean, it's really interesting and recognising, um, as Claire said, we're um, here on Aboriginal land uh, tonight uh, to remember that it's 20 years um, since the Royal Commission into deaths in custody reported, I think it's this week. And uh, I cast my mind back to that report. And what that report said is the media had a crucial role to play in actually seeing that the key recommendation of that commission, that there should be a reduction of the rate of incarceration of Aboriginal people in Australia, that was the key most important thing and that the media had an important role to play. And about um, two years after that, in fact, that was splashed across. You know, that was really one of those stories that did get great coverage on the day. Possibly today it wouldn't get as much, but double page in the Daily Telegraph, for example. National disgrace. About two years after that, with another journalist, Benita Mason, at the Australian Centre for Independent Journalism, uh, we did a small research project on what had happened to that story. And uh, there was almost nil coverage of that story after the Royal Commission reported. And yet that was a crucial period of holding governments to account for implementing more than 300 recommendations. And you know, that I think raises really serious questions about how silence, within a, which is really why it emerges when people don't have press freedom, uh, silence can emerge and the different ways that it can emerge and why it emerges. And so I think you've got sort of many underlying um, factors which can affect press freedom. But at the brutal um, end of it, the black and white end of it, I, I think, would be assassinations and deaths. And so Claire has already mentioned that uh, nearly 3,000, 2,297 journalists have been killed since 1990. But another way of putting it, and you can go to the International Federation of Journalists website if you, if you like to do that. Uh, they've got a really good bar going across. There's been a journalist killed today in Turkey, but there's been 26 journalists killed around the world. That is killed, that's not injured, that's not inhibited, uh, that's not imprisoned, that is killed so far this year. So, you know, while I actually have a very broad idea of press freedom, uh, we must never forget the sacrifices uh, that people um, have, uh, journalists constantly give, um, especially I think in, in particular countries, I don't think our own is by any means uh, the most dangerous. But that doesn't mean there's not dozens of issues that we need to raise here tonight. And the other thing I'd say is, um, is also that um, when we think about press freedom, we tend to think I mean, press is a little bit of an old-fashioned word now, actually, but we tend to think of journalists and the journalist's ability to tell a story. But behind every story is uh, sources, and those sources are always at as much risk as journalists, sometimes far more. And it's in a way the journalists are as important as... The sources are as important as the journalists. And everything, every right, every press law, every is all about the public in the end. There is no argument for journalists having rights unless, except that it enables democracy and it's done to give uh, people a voice and on behalf of the public. So they're just a couple of uh, points I thought I'd make. Um, my, most of my journalism experience um, goes back before the sort of contemporary period, although I am still very actively working as a journalist, but I found myself more um, using documents, uh, doing uh, certainly doing a lot of Googling and all that sort of thing. I still do do interviews, but I don't think that um, I'm in the position to put myself forward as a contemporary investigative journalist just because a whole lot of new tools are required and there's more dangers and um, dangers of a different kind. Like back in the 1980s when I was full-time at Fairfax at the National Times, you know, I did go down on a plane to Melbourne a few times, pick up loads of secret documents and just bring them back to Sydney on the plane, go home. Um, you know, I don't think I kept them at home, but you know, or we'd deliver a cassette tape of a prison escapee in some years before that. So you know, they were, the, in many ways, the easy days. I think today, you know, where you can't move um, without someone being able to know um, uh, 
what, what you're, where you are and what you're doing, but we'll come back to that. I thought I'd just start tonight on a, a bit of a high point uh, in terms of um, journalism, I think, and that is the release of the Panama Papers. I'm sure you've all heard of that. It's a massive global story with political ramifications. And I thought I'd just ask Paul and Claire, first of all, um, do they think that that story has anything to say about press freedom? And you know, some people, I think the IFJ included, have said it shows journalism at a high point. Uh, we often think about it as a low point. Why do you think, or do you think it does show journalism at a high point, and does it tell us anything about press freedom? Uh, Paul, maybe if you begin. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, Sorry, I, ha I haven't introduced Paul and uh, <laughs> I haven't introduced Paul and Alex. I'm very sorry about that. Um, so Paul, you don't know, I don't know how many of you know Paul, but Paul is a Guardian Australian journalist who reports on immigration detention, surveillance, and national security. Many of you will have read his stories. He's written extensively. I think more than any other journalist in Australia currently, he is on top of national security legislation. He has a law degree and I always feel that is a great help as a journalist and he's, therefore he's able to explain the law. But he's also broken uh, major stories around the conditions in which asylum seekers are living and in some senses he's become part of that story and we'll come back to that. And Alex, Alex Hearn is uh, with the International Federation of Journalists. Uh, we've already mentioned that tonight. She's the Asia Pacific Projects and Human Rights Coordinator. She monitors safety and human rights violations against media workers across the Asia-Pacific region and manages the IFJ's communications, developing campaigns on key issues, including press freedom. And we'll certainly be coming back uh, to some of those. So, Paul, having now introduced you, I'll just hand over and ask you to make some comments about the Panama Papers. It's such a big story. Thanks, Wendy. Um, yeah, I, I think the Panama Papers is a really fantastic success story in a space where there are far fewer success stories than perhaps there once were. Um, I, I did have the fortune of working on the, some of the Australian side of the, the Panama Papers as part of the Guardian's global team. We've had a team of reporters working on it all since October, November, and that's when I sort of started digging into all the data there. And um, it was really great. It's... Um, you know, there's, it's a very rich and ripe area. And what was great to see um, is the, the level of collaboration that went on behind it. Um, in terms of what it showed about press freedom, I think that one of the benefits of it is there's this sort of idea of having sort of networked journalism on the internet that kind of makes it a lot harder for particular governments to suppress information. So I think one of the, the ways that the things that WikiLeaks did and also now the ICIJ has done, being based in the United States, is sort of set themselves up in a, a kind of safe haven for, for the press. Um, you know, it's very hard for an organisation or an entity to get an injunction in the United States. So the ICIJ is based there. They have taken advantage of that extremely robust protection that's afforded to them under the First Amendment. And as a result, they have used that to sort of help bolster the reporting in other countries. It doesn't always work, as we've seen in China and other places like that. But I think it's, it showed a really great way of how you can set up these kind of global networked collaborations that can help to shine a light in places that it would be much harder to. I mean, I know it would be much harder to do an investigation like this if it was run purely out of Australia. I mean, we have terrible defamation laws and terrible breach of confidence laws. That would be a huge impediment to, to this if it was all based here. Um, so I think that's the big benefit that I see. And I thought, um, yeah, I think they're great points. And I just thought that Alex, with her um, Asia-Pacific knowledge, could um, perhaps comment on the range of different experiences in reporting the Panama, Panama Papers. And Alex, uh, maybe particularly also China. I mean, from what I've been reading this week, it's pretty well being blocked out. But how successfully can they manage that? Yeah. Um, as I'm aware, the only country in the Asia-Pacific region to um, block reporting on the Panama Papers has been China, um, and that obviously isn't something new. I mean, China, the Chinese government blocks stories on a daily basis. Um, 
a lot of the reporting suggests that the reason this story is being blocked is because um, the president's brother is named in the papers um, among, I think, seven or eight relatives of the um, elite members of the Communist Party in China. Um, there was, a, I think, two papers managed to get it on the story online before the um, restrictive order was issued by the government and then they had to take it down all commentary on their website. So if anybody comments on any story, it has to be deleted, otherwise the um, organisations will be fined and they'll have their websites shut down. So from what um, we've heard, and I spoke to our China coordinator this morning about it, and she said it's just not online in any capacity at the moment. Um, I mean, it's difficult for China because everywhere else is reporting it. And then for those wanting to use or being able to access international news through VPNs and such, they can access it. So people in China are aware of what's going on, but they're just looking at it. It's kind of just another similar situation that keeps happening there. And so the broader public are not aware. And it's interesting when you, know, you mention the um, really senior officials, because after all, in Iceland, the Prime Minister actually had to resign. And uh, in Cameron's obviously in a lot of trouble in the United Kingdom as well. So what you're saying is the journalists can actually access the external information, but they can't actually tell the public about it. Yeah, so it's not being reported in any capacity in China at the moment. And um, our China coordinator said even comments on Weibo and Sina, which is the Chinese social media um, channels are being, sh even those that are comments from just everyday citizens are being deleted rapidly. So they're trying to completely shut down any reporting on the story. Right, so I thought we might just go from, in a way, a high point of um, journalism uh, to what, well, I guess there's a lot of discussion about this and it's another big story today. Uh, we do have um, Australian journalists currently uh, locked up in um, Lebanon, one journalist and uh, crew from 60 Minutes due to a, uh, um, an abduction, attempted abduction of, um, the tr of two children who are now back at home uh, in Lebanon with their father. But nevertheless, uh, this is a huge story um, in the Australian media at the moment. Paul, do you see this as a press freedom, issue of press freedom at all? How do you see it from a journalistic point of view? Um, <laughs> I mean, someone might say journalists have been locked up. That's press freedom. They're just trying to cover the story. Um, you know, they're trying to sort of perhaps side with one party. But yeah, how do you see it? Yeah, I think that a lot of that question will turn on the particular facts in this case. Um, Obviously, one of the aspects that's been reported in the Lebanese media is that 60 Minutes actually sort of paid quite a very large sum of money for this operation. And, I mean, I think if that is true and they have sort of colluded um, in relation to this operation, which, you know, whether you can, you can debate the merits of it, but, but it is essentially, you know, trying to take someone from a foreign country against their will and bring them back to another country, um, I think that would put 60 Minutes in a very difficult situation. Um, it, it is at its core a, a press freedom issue. I, I think you're right. It's still an interference with the work of the press and the work of journalists. But um, I think a lot, of, a lot of the sort of merits of that case will turn on whether or not those allegations in the Lebanese media turn out to be true. And would you like to comment on that, Alex? Yeah. <coughs> Sorry. Um, from the IFJ perspective, we've taken the same approach that Mia has in that we're just at the moment um, monitoring the situation and obviously concerned for their welfare. Um, we have offered support to, along with Mia, to 60 Minutes for any practical support that we can offer, um, but we're basically taking a sidestep at the moment and leaving it to DFAT in their negotiations and just ensuring the welfare of um, the journalists and the crew. Yeah, I think that's really understandable. And so you would see it as very different from, say, a Peter Grest situation, which was also a huge issue when Peter Grest, the Australian journalist, was locked up in Egypt. And, and I think that did really alert a lot of... Uh, it was really a, a very sad for him, but very good in the way, I think, that the MEAA took up that issue and really uh, sort of really rose... In a way, the profile of press freedom got raised higher. 
Look, I think we might move on now to the um, issue of the national security laws and the various ways in which um, there's been over the last decade or more just an increasing level of national security legislation, sometimes through the police, sometimes ATO acts, just ramping it up and every couple of years a new raft of legislation will come through and of course there's absolutely no way we can go into the detail of this tonight and we wouldn't you know be able to get across it and we'd probably go to sleep anyway um, but look one person who's really i think can explain it and actually today um, i think there's a story in the guardian um, that paul actually uh, the, the federal police have admitted that Paul was, uh, information was being collected on him, his movements, through what is called metadata collection. Um, Paul, can you just tell us a little bit about that story and how that links to your experience as a journalist uh, and dealing with the restrictions that are placed on you? Yeah, um, as there was a story today in The Guardian that essentially outlined what you've said, which is that as it transpires, the federal police did actually access my metadata or some form of my metadata. Um, and what, what exactly is metadata? Yeah, well, metadata, it's, um, you know, it's a hard question because as George Brandis knows, it's not an easy one to define. But essentially the, the idea is that it's um, not the content of a communications, which according to the view from government and law enforcement means that it is not therefore as sensitive and doesn't require things like a warrant to access and other points like that. But but actually what it is is, you know, who you've called, who you've spoken to, the time you called them, perhaps the location you were at and all sorts of things. And that applies across phone and web technologies, you know, it can refer to IP addresses. It's all these different things. And really it can kind of paint a whole portrait about your life. Um, and there's been this huge debate in Australia over the last few years about this particular type of data because for a very long time it, it, it has been the case that access to the metadata of all Australians was entirely warrantless. Um, so Which means that they don't have to apply to any sort of court order. Yeah, so essentially the Federal Police would fill out a form. This is actually, I've seen these forms as well. They would fill out a form and they would send it to Optus and Telstra or Vodafone or whoever and they would say, give us the the phone call records of this particular individual or give us the IP information relating to this particular, um, you know, web service or things like that. And, um, of course, that has intersected a lot with journalism because um, what this particular story that um, we published today showed that during the course of one of the AFP's investigations into a story that I had done, because they were trying to find my sources, for a story I did about two years ago um, into the Indonesian incursions. Uh, it was a story about the Indonesian incursions and the position of the ocean protector. And we reported that it had gone far further into Indonesian waters than the government had suggested, uh, and that it was essentially involved in an asylum seeker turnback operation. So this is the on water matters that the government has been at quite extraordinary pains to um, prevent from disclosing information to the public about. And um, they launched an investigation about 18 months ago into that story and um, over the a sort of year-long period investigated more and more and more. And I requested under the Privacy Act um, a heap of information related to that investigation. On yourself. Yeah. So, so you used the Privacy Act to say anyone in this room could have done the same thing, I guess, but they're not doing the story, but it is open to members of the public. So you, under the Privacy Act, said you want to know all the documents related to that. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a great tool for journalists to use both FOI and privacy. I mean, I've always been a huge, you know, proponent of that sort of, um, those sort of legislative tools, because you can really use them as a kind of sword to help you do journalism and, and do good stuff. Um, now, they declined to release a lot of material to me, and I appealed that to the Privacy Commissioner. And the Privacy Commissioner then um, is sort of still deliberating over it, but the AFP provided some submissions, and in the course of those submissions sort of admitted that they had accessed my metadata, which is pretty silly of them, really. Um, and I think they're probably regretting that decision right now. Um, <laughs> and there's probably some high-level conversations being had um, in rooms, like, why did you do this? Why did you say that? Anyway. Um, but yeah, so that's essentially how that story came about. Um, oh, and when you got this big file, um, which it was quite a lot of pages, wasn't it? Which was, and if, 
showed all the documents related to Paul's investigation of his story. You know, and as a journalist, that's a pretty creepy feeling, I think, because you know, you're used to uh, protecting everything you do, I, I think. And so what did that make you feel like, that, yeah. that there's that much information? It was really chilling. Um, and, you know, finding out about that my metadata had been accessed is just a really awful feeling. I mean, that's if that had included my phone and email records, you know, they would know all of the people I've contacted over the last few years. And, you know, I don't know what they've done with that data. I don't know how they're using it subsequently. It's a really awful, awful thought um, to think that that has happened. But it's kind of normalised in Australia. You know, leak investigations are seen as something that are kind of not out of the ordinary, which I find incredibly bizarre in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we have these very broad laws that allow investigations into disclosures of Commonwealth information, which is basically anything. And as a result, this kind of enables this process then where your metadata, your phone records could be accessed and things like that. Um, and I really do wonder how many other times it's happened. In a minute, I just want to throw to Alex and ask her, is this sort of thing happening in our region? Uh, what sort of pressures are journalists under there? But I think some people here would be um, yeah, old enough like me to remember that um, uh, Brian Tui did a lot of investigations into national security uh, 30 years ago and was taken to the High Court a few times and he also applied under FOI for his, I think it was his ASIO file, or no, it would have been his federal police file and it was actually a double page story at the time. But what is remarkable, I think, by, and perhaps highlights the change is that that was just full of character assassination of Brian Tui, what a horrible person he was and not to be trusted and and uh, was any of that sort of thing or was it all really much more hard information and therefore more threatening I think? Yeah I mean from what I've seen it's certainly all very clinical and focused on electronics and things like that. Oh, I mean, things the, like this person is a little Yeah yeah oh look I'm sure that I'm sure that exists somewhere in some database held by ASIO or something like that so I'll have to wait another 25 years or whatever to access that under the Archives Act. But I, but I will. It's on my it's on my list. Um, there's, there's actually there's a guy on Twitter I know who um who has an alarm. He's, he's like his highest tweet is an alarm clock he's set for 30 years for when he can access his um, ASIO file. I was thinking of also doing. I think it's a good it's a good idea. Um, Hey, this is Kate Golden from the Walkley Foundation. Pardon the interruption. We'll get back to the panel in a sec. If you're getting all riled up about the state of press freedom, which is natural, here is one super easy thing you can do. Donate to the Media Safety and Solidarity Fund. It does things like help the families of Asia-Pacific journalists killed for doing their jobs. Even a couple of lattes worth of dollars can go a long way. Learn more about it at walkleys.com slash pressfreedom. Okay, back to it. And, and Alex, just going, I mean, you've done some reports around the region and certainly uh, your work has helped produce other reports. Uh, as a sort of experience that Paul is having as a journalist, uh, mirrored by experiences with journalists in Asia-Pacific countries? Um, or is it different? Yeah, it's different in the sense of we don't have a story similar to what is in, at the moment happening to Paul. Um, what we know is that governments are increasingly enhancing their powers against journalists under the name of national security. Um, the biggest thing we were working on last year would have been the national security and the anti-terror laws that we introduced in China. Um, the IFJ made submissions as China, the Chinese government calls for them with their draft laws, but nothing was changed. So it's kind of the situation in China with the introduction of the national security law is dire for journalists um, in the sense that they can be monitored at any level. Um, websites uh, have to keep the IP addresses of people who make comments and people who access the website for five years and at any request of the government can have to produce these records. Um, this It's similar to the um, laws in Australia, except that the government in China kind of has a bit more power and doesn't need a warrant in any capacity to access the um, data of journalists. Um, we also have situations in Pakistan where the government is um, tightening its grip 
on electronic media. They've done things like ban, completely ban websites. So YouTube is banned in Pakistan. In Bangladesh, we've had um, WhatsApp banned, mainly because WhatsApp is a good encryption tool for um, communication between journalists and obviously everybody, but journalists were using it. Um, so they've banned WhatsApp. And so there are different tactics that are being used across the region. The same theme seems to be there. And perhaps, I mean, it would be true, I think, that the Privacy Act that Paul has used, um, there just wouldn't be that sort of act yeah. or enabling power in some other societies. Um, look, I do want to come back to the whole issue of the warrants and, and the situation here as well. But I thought just because I thought it's such um, an important issue of press freedom that I did want to make sure we touched on it. Um, Five years ago, um, 35 journalists were massacred in Mindanao. Um, I've attended vigil in New Zealand uh, of Asia-Pacific journalists uh, campaigning to keep attention and, and try to bring some, um, I guess, accountability and, and resolution to that situation. Uh, what's the IFJ been doing around that and what sort of support can you offer? You know, that's just a horrific situation when you think of how we've Remembered here, the five journalists, Bilbao Bill, Bill Bill yeah, journalists in um, East Timor, and, and that's 35 journalists just massacred. Um, yeah, so the Ampatuan massacre remains the single deadliest attack on the media worldwide in history. So it was 32 journalists um, among 58 people who were massacred um, in the southern Philippines. Um, the IFJ was part of a mission that went to the Philippines a month after the massacre um, with representatives from MIA and the Media Safety and Solidarity Fund. They went and met with government, went with local journalists and kind of pushed it and were like, what are you going to do? Um, the current president of the Philippines, um, President Aquino, actually one of his big campaigns in the lead up to when he was elected in 2010 was that he would ensure people were prosecuted. Um, to this day, six and a half years on, no one's been prosecuted. One of the head accused from the family that um, orchestrated the killing, died in custody last year, so he will never be prosecuted. Um, and then for the fifth anniversary in um, 2014, the IFJ led another mission with our local affiliate. Um, and so we went back, basically we met with families, we met with the children of the deceased journalists and met with government and kind of pushed them again. Um, they seem to think they're doing stuff they're not. Since the massacre, another 42 journalists have died. The Philippines is the second deadliest country for journalists in the world, only following on from Syria. So it's a peacetime country. And since 1990, we recorded 146 journalists have been killed. Um, it was the deadliest country in the Asia Pacific region last year. I mean, the statistics kind of speak for themselves. Nothing is happening in the Philippines. They have set up task force, they've pumped money into um, the judiciary um, and things like that. But in the case of the Ampatuan massacre, five witnesses have been killed since the massacre because they were going to go and speak at trial. But I mean, the situation isn't just the Ampatuan massacre. There's the case of Jerry Ortega, who was a radio journalist. He was killed in 2010. Um, there's been success stories in his case in the sense that um, the gunman and the person who bought the gun have both been sentenced and jailed, um, and they're in, I think they're in jail for life, but they have both come out and said that the mastermind of Jerry Ortega's killing was the local governor, him and his brother, the Reese brothers. They were only arrested in 2015 when they got extradited from Thailand. They still haven't even been charged, even though they have people who were involved in the killing saying they orchestrated it. So that's an issue across the Asia Pacific where the mastermind is never prosecuted. There's only, I think, the average is that one in 10 cases of a journalist killing, someone's prosecuted, but it's never the mastermind. That's um, a great, I think, summing up of that issue. Um, I think it's in a way ironic, although, I mean, it's too tragic to be ironic, but. In some senses, the Philippines is a country where there is quite a lot of 
press freedom in the sense that you can publish a lot. The defamation laws aren't nearly as strict, I think, as they are here or the UK. Um, so in some ways, it's quite a lot of press freedom. It's almost more in the US model, and yet you've got this absolute um, oppression and, yeah. and assassination. They've definitely got press freedom in the general sense of what you think of press freedom, but the rate that journalists are killed um, is obviously just dire and the culture of impunity like they know that they're not going to get caught so it's not an issue that they worry about um, and yeah I mean I think last year out of the seven people that were killed they were all shot and they were all radio broadcasters so there's that's also another issue but we've had um, the member the chairperson of our affiliate in the Philippines. Um, she basically got attacked on social media and was threatened to the point where she had to leave for a month because she just couldn't guarantee her safety. I mean, we've had other um, stories of, fa of journalists moving their families to other provinces because they want to keep working and they'll stay in the province, but they can't guarantee the safety of their family anymore. I think that's a really um, good point too. Look, I went to Indonesia a few years ago to teach uh, investigative journalism for a week and journalists came from um, all over to Jakarta and some of those journalists had actually not been out of their provincial provinces before. And I really uh, just was struck by the courage that if you're a young journalist out there in a rural area trying to cover an issue, it might be illegal logging, that was the particular one that was coming up in Indonesia, and you are just sort of alone without very little support in a paper without much resources, and they are still mainly newspapers there, and you are so vulnerable. And often people have to leave town, and once they leave town, it's very difficult to, um, to support themselves without their networks. So I th I'm really glad that we sort of come back um, to that issue. But then I would like also to go back to um, some Australian issues, because, um, you know, asylum seekers, and in a way, it's quite a good segue because, you know, the people fleeing to Australia are seeking protection. Uh, some of them, of course, are many of them, all of them, I would say, or all those who are successful in applications are, are fleeing over human rights abuses, but there's a fair number of uh, freedom of expression issues amongst them as well. And so it's a huge um, issue, I think, for us now in Australia as journalists, our lack of uh, capacity to cover those issues, although, I mean, there is the important question of, well, they do get covered and what is the best way to cover them? Last year, um, I, some people suggested to me that I could go to Nauru uh, to report on the situation of women on Nauru, which I willingly would have done, and some money was crowdsourced, and, um, you know, I couldn't even get a uh, response to my emails about a visa. Um, even though we were able to pay the $8,000 to Nauru that it would have cost, you know, it just wasn't ever going to happen. And we're currently writing a big report on women on Nauru as a way of getting that story out. But um, I just thought I would start with um, the detention centres in Australia, Paul. I mean, if you want to head out to Villawood tonight, if you hear something's happening there, can you just run out there with your... Um, phone to do some phone interviews and how do you actually get that story out? Um, yeah, with, with a lot of difficulty, uh, unfortunately. Um, I mean, I remember once that I, one time I went out to Villawood and sort of walked on the land and there's a big sign out there prohibiting photography because it's Commonwealth land and you can, you know, be charged with an offence for taking a photo when you're standing on Commonwealth land if you're there. Um, you know, the you can sort of try and go in as a visitor, but that's very risky. It's very risky for the people inside who have to sort of vouch for you to come in because they could be subject to recriminations. And it's very risky because, you know, uh, the, the private company that manages the detention centres, Serco, has um, various databases and you might sort of get pinged and identified as a journalist as you're trying to walk in. Um, so it's very hard to get any kind of information still about what's going on. And Labor did make some attempts to try and make detention centres more transparent by having a sort of deed of agreement and sending journalists through on guided tours, which was problematic in and of itself for various reasons, because you were essentially subject to the vetting of the immigration department. But we don't even have that anymore. And no journalist has been allowed into an onshore detention centre 
since the coalition came to power. Um, and on Nauru, as, um, as, as you mentioned before, I mean, the only journalist who has been able to get on there is Chris Kenny. Um, and, you know, you can all make your own decisions about that. Um, you know, and, and just as a sort of further point on that, the, the same week that Chris Kenny was allowed to go onto Nauru, the Nauruan police raided the offices of Save the Children's buildings because they thought they were one of my sources for one of my stories that I'd written about the detention centre there just a day earlier. Um, you know, and I just think that the idea that they are in any way interested in press freedom with Chris Kenny's visit there is really kind of quite farcical. And I think actually I heard one of the workers, Save the Children workers, um, speak at, at another forum about the impact uh, that those raids uh, on them and the accusations that they've been doing the wrong thing in, in professional terms has been absolutely devastating on their lives as well, I think. So, and plus their services were withdrawn. So there's been sort of huge ramifications of all of that. Um, I wanted to move to, to um, you mentioned before, um, in the Crimes Act uh, forever in Australia, it is a really serious offence if you as a Commonwealth um, public servant uh, leak information, I think it's two years imprisonment if you're caught. I mean, and, and this has a very serious inhibiting effect on anyone who might think there's a public interest in leaking documents. And in fact, those earlier cases, some of them which went to court, um, or actually went to court, but they never went any further because um, Brian Tui, who was then an editor of Fairfax, was going to be put in the witness box and asked about his sources. And that would have sent, I mean, of course, he wasn't going to name them. So it was either him going to jail or, of course, the sources, although there was never a chance he would name them. So that, that act has always been there. But then in the last couple of years, I'm not sure the exact date, but there was an act passed uh, which actually affects people working in detention centres. So it goes further than the public service. Could you just explain, Paul, how that works and, and um, do you think that has been effective or do you think that people have spoken out against it sufficiently that it now no, now no longer has any power? Yeah, I think that, I mean, what uh, the offence that Wendy is referring to is one of the offences in the Australian Border Force Act um, that did receive a lot of coverage last year because so many former detention centre workers sort of spoke out in defiance about it. Um, and it operates a little differently from the Crimes Act offence that is generally used to prosecute whistleblowers. In some senses, it's a little bit broader um, because it can, can even lead to prosecutions for a person simply making a record or something like that. So it can even be an act short of disclosure itself. So the example of that is you forward on an email to a personal email address or you write some notes from a file or you take a photograph of something and things like that, um, but you don't necessarily disclose it to anyone. So all those, what they were trying to do is sort of cover that gap where, um, you know, they would identify someone who they thought was going to leak something but didn't quite get there. Um, so it's still a very serious offence as well. In terms of the, the impact it has, I mean, the obvious intent was to create a further chilling effect because of the enormous amount of leaks and disclosures coming out of detention centres um, because of how horrific everything has been there the last few years. But uh, I think it ended up having a very, um, quite the opposite effect really, because it really galvanised a lot of people in detention centres to speak out and continue to speak out. Um, you know, I mean, the Crimes Act defence has always been there um, and had sort of limited deterrent power, really, um, because people were still doing it. And um, I think the Border Force Act has really failed in doing that because at the end of the day, I mean, people are going to cross that line when they realise that what they're seeing is just not right. Yes, so um, I'm not sure how much um, the audience knows about this, but doctors, nurses and others have collectively uh, made a statement that they will you know, defy the law. They're, they're prepared in conscience to break that law. And I think that has effectively um, uh, partly neutralised it. But Paul, what about, I mean, you're going to ring someone in a detention, like you want to get a story, you're pursuing a story. Um, what sort of effect um, would it have on what you would do? And how does how do you deal with that? I'd like to come also to how you in practice deal with confidentiality. 
Yeah, it's it's really hard because you can't, you know, you're actually, if someone comes to you with confidential information and they're a source, you know, there are massive stakes at play and you need to make them aware of that. You have to sort of make it clear that they understand that. And I think it's really irresponsible to journalists who don't sort of make it clear that sometimes those people are taking risks if they if they are doing that. In terms of the practical side of things, um, it is immensely difficult. And, and the phone issue is kind of, I think, the, the key one, really, because as we've discussed, phone records are so easily accessible. Um, and as a sort of caveat to that, there is now a requirement that um, a journalist, to access a journalist's metadata, you need a warrant. Um, but uh, I think that's actually quite a, a small and weak protection, really. And it also doesn't apply to potential sources. So the the police could, for instance, then just gather a, a sort of short list of all the people on a customs vessel or all the people who, you know, in a, in a particular detention centre and then request all their metadata without a warrant and still use that to sort of create a network analysis of, of who would be talking to the journalists. But so I think, you know, you, the, the very first thing is just you, just you just can't use a regular phone call to contact people. That is the highest risk. Um, to sort of get past that then, that's where it gets much trickier because if someone just contacts you out of the blue on a phone like that, what do you do? Um, and I think there's a pretty good case that you have to sort of really warn them that you sort of can't take this any further. And there's a lot of journalists who, I mean, Ross Coulthart has made these sort of comments before as well, that he's been in this situation and Ross Coulthart is a very senior 60 Minutes journalist, uh, not, not the guy, not, the, not involved in the Lebanon stuff at all, anyway. But um, he's been in that situation as well, and he sort of said, well, I can't really talk to you any further. And I think that's a fair, probably, you know, a very sensible approach to take. Um, so the other point you get then is you have to educate sources and other people how to use other forms of technology. And the, I'm very fortunate because The Guardian has what's called SecureDrop, which is a very sophisticated, um, anonymized form of messaging system that is great. Um, but it's also very cumbersome. So really, the best way, and honestly, I mean, you should all, if you, if you don't have it on your phones, you should get your phones out right now and download um, an application called Signal, which is a really fantastic and easy to use encrypted phone messaging application. Um, and, you know, what I think is a really good way to communicate with, with people where you could have a degree of certainty, you can never be completely confident about something, but used to start using a lot of these phone encryption messaging apps and things like that, because while there are still risks to using with them, um, some of those risks surrounding normal phone records really are not there. And as you can see from the AFP files, those are the kind of core risks that you're facing. It's all about kind of risk management and risk assessment. And what about encrypting emails? And Alex, if you want to come in with any experience, international experience on this, uh, do you encrypt your emails or, or do people know how to do it? Or Yeah, I think um, it very much depends on the situation. Um, but often with sources and confidential contacts, it's really more the... Um, it's really more the fact that you have communicated with them, the, you know, the metadata, as it were, that is the most risky, um, that, that's the most exposed. So I think you should definitely try and encrypt things, but anonymising your contact with them is kind of the critical point, I think. But um, email encryption is good. It's also a little bit cumbersome still as well. Um, but they're all kind of part of a suite of different tools and methods that you should be trying to use. Um, and um, I, just in terms of Signal, I could recommend it. Um, it's very easy to download. And if you do want to have uh, conversations that you don't think are tracked, it's very good. But you know, I can understand where Ross Coulthard's coming from, because I'm now in a situation where if someone uh, was to contact me with what I thought was any information that was putting them in danger, I really would have to decline and pass the story to Paul or, or probably, in my case, someone at New Matilda who was a bit more technically up to date than I am. But on the other hand, you know, there's no reason why I couldn't actually do those, so no one should feel inhibited by their age. Um, Claire, how are we going for time? We should go to questions, yes. So look, there's a lot of topics that we haven't covered. Uh, one of them is defamation. And I don't know whether Alex might like to add something about criminal defamation perhaps during this next period. But so we do get time for questions. Uh, who has got uh, a question? Um, yes, over here. Hi. Um, oh, I've got a really loud voice. <laughs> um, I think they want to capture it on tape. Oh, do they? Yes, thank you. Uh, ooh. Uh, my question is, 
questions directed to Paul. Sorry, closer. Have there been any arrests under the Border Force Act that you're aware of? Uh, I, did, I, did, I did actually FOI the AFP about this a little while ago as well. Um, so it's a very useful tool. And as far as I was aware, there had been at the time, and this was a few months ago, there had been no referrals even under the Border Force Act. So as far as I know, there has been none. Um, one of the curiosities, though, about that offence and about the Australian Border Force is that it is now an enforcement agency. So what concerns me is that it could be sort of building a brief of evidence on its own that it would then just pass straight to the DPP or something like that. Um, but as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been any. Another question up the back. Yeah, um, you said before, Paul, that there's been a huge debate over this metadata retention. Hasn't the small size of the debate being more noteworthy. I mean, if you look at the US or the other Five Eyes powers which have introduced these kinds of suites of legislation, public debate has been much more heated than it has been in Australia. I mean, you, you cover this all the time, and it seems like we, more than any other Western country, just sort of acquiesces to this, uh, to this stuff being done. Um, I'm wondering why you think that is. Yeah. In fact, in one I article you were quite critical about the journalists, yes. Yeah, I, I often wonder as well why the same thing. Look, I think it's a combination of things. Um, certainly one very glaring example is compared to the US, for instance, we really don't have the very kind of strong libertarian foundations of government that is very kind of embedded in the national consciousness there. But also I think it's, you know, in some respects a kind of failure of journalism to, and, and journalists to sort of rally together a lot. I think the Australian journalism industry is incredibly divided and divisive. And as a result, when there are kind of issues that aren't really important like this, there is a lot of division around it. And, and it really limits the effectiveness of kind of affecting change with that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I really hope that the answer is that people just don't care, because that would be really horrible um, and uh, I do think you know you just have we've always had very conservative governments here and, and I think you just got to sort of keep going and you know change is always slow. Another question? Yes. Sir. Um, Paul, you might need a microphone. Yeah. Probably no. not, no. Um, <laughs> just curious on a different topic. I'm just um, yeah, curious to know what sort of role GetUp plays in all of this because they put out something with this afternoon saying, of course, that Malcolm Turnbull might be Prime Minister but he's not running the country. And the danger of the um, Abbott and the silent majority behind him and the fact that this is being supported by Murdoch. And I wonder, if you work in News Limited, what do you do? Do you just roll over and they scratch your tummy and you're stifled? Or, I mean, they get up a, for, for people who are not in the industry like we are. Um, is very, uh, I think, good in, in drawing these issues to our attention. I think GetUp does, it, maybe I can say something on that one. I, obviously GetUp does, when they take up an issue, they do reach many people in a different way than might um, be reading particular, particular media outlets. So obviously they're significant. But I was just thinking as Paul was talking, and it's relevant to your question, and News Limited, that I mean, we have really, we haven't gone into it all tonight, but we have really draconian uh, national security legislation, which makes it extremely difficult to report um, even basic information on what might be happening with operations involving ASIO. Now, you know, of course, there are some arguments for that, but there's just no um, checks and balances there. And there's so much silencing that there is, of course, another way of getting your message across, and that is to choose media outlets and you know, do a drip feed through there. So that becomes the dominant narrative. So in fact, there is coverage through um, a large number of powerful outlets and it, very difficult to report any sort of counter story. And so, you know, I think the structure of our media, and Paul has mentioned that, uh, does make it um, very difficult. You know, I think that the voices, because it is so divided, but uh, News Corp is still so powerful 
and they do have a lot of uh, strong connections. Like if you're a national security reporter and you have close links inside and you sort of do your job pretty much as required, you're going to get more stories. And there's, that's a factor you know, in coverage that we haven't been able to talk much. Alex, would you like to make any comment on that, just about you know, the difficulties of you know, changing any of this or speaking up um, when these laws are going through? I know the MEAA does uh, take a stand and also the IFJ, but often it's a fairly quiet voice. Um, yeah, I mean, in the case of Australia, um, Mia definitely made submissions and has had multiple meetings with government ministers and um, about the laws and ha they have been campaigning about the um, national security laws for the whole time that there's kind of been any discussion about them. I mean, um, for the IFJ, we make submissions to government on requests for our affiliates in the cases of what's happening in their countries. I mean, a lot of the time there is little to no impact those submissions I mean, as far as I'm aware, those submissions have never had any impact. Um, but one of the things is whether, you, like, we don't stop campaigning on it. So we still support Mia in the what they're doing and speaking out um, on the national security laws. In the case of Paul today, like, we issued a statement off Mia's statement about um, that as an attack on press freedom. And that's kind of the avenue that we take. We're kind of constrained in that we just do the work of what our affiliates kind of request, but it's not something that's just happening in Australia, um, but I think the situation in Australia is worrying, for sure. Um, are there, is there another question? Can I raise a red hearing about press freedom and ask Um, the IFJ has no, we don't, obviously don't have an affiliate in North Korea. We've got an affiliate in, um, South Korea, which has quite an active media. Um, but from our position, we just work with our affiliates in country. So we don't have any experience or any comment on, I mean, obviously from a personal viewpoint, the situation in Korea is just one in kind of one in itself. It's not mirrored elsewhere the way that it kind of exists in that manner. I'm not sure if Paul or Wendy has a comment on that. Uh, not on North Korea except that extreme uh, censorship. But, you know, sometimes, um, and I, I don't want to take away from that at all, but I went to Vietnam where many people would think there is extreme censorship and certainly suppression of bloggers and you know, a lot of problems there. But I gave a course for, on investigative journalism there and I was quite you know, really struck by the amount of reporting that was going on, journalists swimming up rivers to cover pollution stories, um, journalists doing really courageous things at the border to do with the smuggling of labour. And uh, also, interestingly enough, some of those stories were stopped more by uh, commercial interests um, stopping the stories uh, and threatening to withdraw advertising than actually state uh, censorship. And so, you know, there was a situation where people in a provincial town would pass it to the, to the people in Ho Chi Minh City. So not to take away from the very severe censorship in Vietnam, but to say that there's journalists everywhere, probably even in North Korea, there are journalists trying to break uh, through those restrictions. Uh, Claire, have we got still some time? Yeah. Uh, yes, I've got a, a general question on investigative journalism. So one of these issues, whether they're here in, in, in terms of security or internationally, have, have risks. And I'm just interested from a professional point of view, does a journalist as an individual assess the risk or does the organisation together that you work <coughs> for with you work through those risks? Or do you take a punt and you just work your way through until the situation comes up and then you try to assess how do I actually get through that? What thoughts go through in your process to actually, you obviously you're pursuing it, you, you've got a passion there. How do you actually assess risks? Yeah, I am, um, yeah, because I have a sort of law background, I'm a huge nerd, my process is also very like sort of structured and segmented with it. Um, and I think it's, it's always going to be a collaborative thing with 
um, with your organisation or if you, if you are working for an organisation. Um, but I think, I mean, you know, the starting point you're always going to work from is, is am I doing, um, is what I'm doing in the public interest? And then you weigh up, have to weigh up a series of different and competing risks about that. And that might be things to do with your confidential sources. I mean, that's kind of one of the core tenets. You have to protect your sources. Um, and then there's kind of a series of other factors like how far can we push this story? What can we publish responsibly? What can we publish legally? Um, and how can we sort of navigate all those different legal and ethical and moral risks? Um, so I think it's like it is a very structured process and that's the way it works best. And I feel like maybe that's, um, there's actually not that much written about investigative journalism process and I'd love to see more on it because it is such a fascinating and kind of, it could actually be a very refined and technical process in the way that you know, teaching the legal system is as well. Um, but there isn't really that kind of body of work yet. But, I think yeah. one of the, um, picking up on what Paul's saying there, I think one of the things that I felt um, at one stage when every single story has to get legal for defamation, that you're constantly thinking, you know, can I do this, can I do that? Is it going to be worth doing that because I might lose that paragraph? Or, um, and in the end, it could almost affect your own writing style. And uh, there used to be a sort of classic where, you know, if something was said in Parliament, you know, in 1974, you'd be referring always like, oh, as was said in the South Australian Parliament in 1974 about a particular person, when you're writing in, you know, 2005, that can be very artificial and very clunky. But I've found, uh, since I started really more actively practising journalism again, quite a disturbing thing um, where people are issuing defamation threats and uh, say to not very powerful organisations and saying, you will be, um, you know, we're going to claim all costs, blah, blah, even if you haven't actually got a case for defamation, just threatening straight out um, money. And this can lead to stories going offline. In fact, even in Fairfax, one by a very good column by Michael West uh, went offline, just disappeared at the end of last year without any defamation, defamation writ. So I've now learned from that. Um, I lost two or three stories that were not defamatory. Um, so now I know that I personally must put anything I think risky on my own blog. So it is actually my decision what I take down or I don't take down. But when these threats come, they come take down everything, every Twitter, every um, Facebook post. And so Tony Shepherd, who was, um, uh, was chair of Transurban and did the commission for audit for the Abbott government, I did a tweet about something and he threatened to sue me. But luckily there, the Herald, I just kept going and the Herald reported it. So that sort of thing can break down the risks as well. I think if you've got journalists sticking together rather than divided, you're going to be a lot stronger. And if people take up each other's stories. Thank you. So that was a little bit of a rave. Another question? Yeah. Um, this might rely a little bit of sort of legal ignorance on my part, but um, I'm just curious, in trying to pro uh, protect the confidentiality of sources, so you're trying to, you know, you're trying to protect, uh, you know, keep, keep your sources confidential because that's sort of the, one of the tenets on which the free press operates. Um, what are the legal checks and balances as you see them at the moment in terms of the powers that the police have to, like, you know, obviously with the, with the metadata issue, um, they've got avenues there to just go in guns blazing and, and take some of that information. But, um, yeah, are, are there any restrictions there on their power to, like, legally to be able to just break confidentiality or, you know, force you to reveal sources, or is it more kind of backdoor mechanisms of... Uh, metadata and, as you say, painting a picture from who you called and when and what phone call went where and deducing that it must have been that person that you spoke to, etc. Yeah, um, there's sort of a continuum of different issues there. Um, I mean, the police obviously have their own powers um, to do certain things and one of those is they can access metadata for a journalist that's with a warrant and there are sort of some privacy considerations now in the legislation they have to sort of take into account in doing that. Um, but when you sort of get beyond that, they also have other powers. So one thing they could do is, um, you know, execute a search warrant on your premises or on someone else's premises, and they could compel you to decrypt files and documents. 
Um, and that's all that would also require a warrant, but it's another power that they have. When you get to the sort of court stage process, in the event that all of those things aren't enough for them to build a case, you could potentially be compelled to give evidence. But uh, because we do now have uh, shield laws, that has not worked out very well for a lot of the individuals who have sought to compel journalists to give evidence. Um, Steve Pennell's case and other people's cases like that are really good examples of that. So I think the, the issues surrounding the powers are possibly more pressing at the moment than the compulsion mechanisms in court. Um, but they're all, you know, there's still a whole bunch of different risks with each of them, yeah. Um, so I think Claire would like to wrap up now. Thanks everyone for your questions. I feel there's so many things that we could have talked about, but maybe that will need another session next year. <laughs> yeah, sorry to wrap it up. I think we could keep talking all night. But thank you all for being here with us. Please thank Wendy, Paul and Alex for sharing their insights tonight. That's a wrap. You've been listening to a Walkley Media Talk. Thanks for this panel go to Paul Farrell from The Guardian, Alex Hearn from the International Federation of Journalists, and Wendy Bacon. Find her at wendybacon.com. Thanks to APAC, Australia's public affairs channel, for recording this podcast. And finally, a big thanks to the State Library of New South Wales for hosting. I'm Kate Golden from the Walkley Foundation. You might know us from the Walkley Awards, but we're more than that. Our purpose is to celebrate and encourage great Australian journalism, telling the nation's stories and strengthening democracy. Get on our email list at walkleys.com slash subscribe, and you'll never miss anything we ever do. Catch you next time. Cheers.